We all have our comfort games and comfort genres. Something that probably isn't as good as that masterpiece in your Steam library, but you really don't feel like playing that right now. For a lot of us, that genre is the Warriors games or Musou games. One versus 1000 slugfests that aren't the most refined, aren't the most involved, but just plain feel good. What music comes with that? Let's find out. Welcome to Music Arcade. Hello everyone, I'm Galen the Sound Guy Firestone. We are welcome to this special Mooks Must Die edition of Music Arcade. Hello, this is Ronakel. Unfortunately, Eddie will not be joining us today. He got a new dog. Uh, I mean, if I had the choice between you and me and a cute little puppy, I mean, I would make the, ch the same choice. It's kind of an obvious decision. It, yeah. Exactly. I, I can't begrudge the guy. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's on puppy duty for the week. We are hoping to have him back. We promised last week that we'd have a real theme and the end of our episode last time we were talking about Samurai Warriors and I think we all just sort of came to the conclusion of we have more to say on the general topic of, uh, Musou games and Warriors games. Yeah, it turns out there is a very interesting, uh, and sensible musical theme that, and pace that accompanies murdering thousands of mook yeah yeah and on that subject and i'm calling you out live on the internet ranakel when are we co-opting again because we've been doing the samurai warriors thing and we just sort of stopped yes let's do that again uh, i mean uh not tonight i'm going no. to sleep after the episode but uh tomorrow next week anytime yeah the only thing is that i've had uh these uh Streams that a uh, friend of mine made, uh, private streams uh, from uh, Discord directly. Okay. Uh, for something story where we do uh, stupid voices. Uh, <laughs> the game itself is fascinating in the worst of ways. But uh, it's a long topic, so I'm going to uh, talk about it at another time. That sounds awesome. So before we begin, I kind of wanted to... I kind of want to talk about how we each discovered the Musou series, because it is sort of a wacky niche genre that not a lot of people really play or are into, and a lot of the general gaming sphere and a lot of the general, um, like, random schmucks on, on uh, game news sites tend to be very derisive of it, largely from a position of never having played them, I'm sure. Or mostly from a position of them feeling all the same yeah except which, that's a genre yeah that's that is a genre most turn-based rpgs feel kind of the same for all the exact same reasons so it's it's and especially all shooters um like if you're a first person shooter you have a gun you aim it down sight you shoot it's they feel the same yep. that's the point of genres so it's it's really to me a very invalid argument i don't I don't like it, I don't appreciate it, but for those of us who do appreciate this genre in general, let's uh, let's get into it. How, uh, how do before you discover we it? Do, uh, before okay. we do, I'd like to bring up how the genre even started. Yeah, okay, we can get into a little history lesson, I like that. Yeah, because I actually have the knowledge. I think that was from an episode of Game Center CX, a Japanese uh, show that's essentially uh, a middle-aged guy that's not really good at video games doing let's plays nice 
it, it, it's amazing. So he's Jack uh, Patillo, got it. And uh, there were some interview segments, including the one with the founder of Koei. And it turns out that what prompted the creation of the Warriors game is that Koei is much older than uh, that creation. They started on yeah. a PS1, PS2, uh, depending on when you consider where's the start. We'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, before that, uh, Koei was mostly known for uh, historical games, which they still do. That's oh, yeah. their main business, that's the, the core of their identity. And uh, they do uh, all sorts of uh, settings and eras, and right now we are for their main series, Romance of the, of the Three Kingdoms, on like episode 14 of, or 15, something like that. Uh, the problem, however, is that these games aren't exactly exciting to a mass market. They're yeah. strategy games, they're pretty large-scale, and console-centric too, which isn't where most of the Western strategy games uh, was, and still is, though these games have moved to PC since then. And yeah. so they were searching to diversify genres in order to bring in a more mainstream crowd and have them take interest in the settings uh, of their historical games. Which is how we ended up with a fighting game. Yeah. Um, I don't know much about the fighting game other than I've seen some... Uh, I've seen the costumes make a reappearance from time to time and boy howdy, no one looks like <laughs> anybody I'm familiar with. Yeah, PS1 graphics were a thing. They were, but even like... PS3 level remakes of those costumes which you got in I think Dynasty Warriors 7? Even that was a little like, man these looked weird. The costume designers were a little weird on this one, gotta be honest. Yeah. Uh, but then starting with the second one, they took more of a page from the book of beat'em ups. But I did yes. a third person spin on them. Like I yeah. distinctly remember uh, when I first started uh, I remember specifically Dynasty Warriors 3 Hulao Gate and the way you had to open successive doors by killing the officers before then was very much like clearing a room to, to have the go sign that tells you to walk forward in a Streets of Rage. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons I like the genre so much is I grew up on those games. I played Final Fight of the Arcade a ton. I still play it. I still come back to that game. It's just that good. Um, so what I first saw, in my case, it was Dynasty Warriors 2 Hulao's Gate. Um, I was, I, I understand that same DNA is there. It's, it's very similar in that regard, and I appreciate that to no small degree. Exactly. So, you say you started around the, the time where arcades were still a thing? With beat-em-ups, yeah. Speci I remember there was one arcade... On Catalina Island, which is this small island just off of Los Angeles, uh, specifically off of Long Beach, um, that has like two tourist towns, a giant nature preserve, a big golf course, um, 
it, it, it's just a small thing. It, it's it's an island paradise with a 323 area code. It's kind of wonderful. Um, man, I kind of want to go back. Last time I was there was a couple... <laughs> this is not relevant. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, there was one arcade there, and there were three games me and my buddy Sean played, like, nonstop while we were there. It was the original NBA Jam. It was... There was some... It was, it was some fighting game or another that wasn't Street Fighter. I don't think it was Mortal Kombat either. I, there was some there was some fighting in there, and then it was Final Fight One. Um, mm-hmm. And those were the three arcade games in that space that we in that little arcade on Catalina Island that uh, we really just fell in with, and that was that was one of my like formative just big smiles on my faces kind of kind of memories. Well, that's funny because my start with Dynasty Warriors was with a buddy uh, as well. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, I'm in a small town, like shortly over 2,000 inhabitants. Okay. And uh, so obviously no arcade or anything like that. But one of my buddies from uh, grade school, uh, which I still regularly uh, checked with at the time, um, his uh, father worked at a supermarket toy ale, meaning that they had first dibs on a lot of uh, new releases, and so I regularly came to his house to enjoy a variety of games. That's how we enjoyed together, like Final Fantasy eight, nine, and ten. Nice. Uh, that's how we also got into uh, Dynasty Warriors starting with free. Even in co-op this time, instead of just taking turns. Nice. Uh, yeah, my first actual Dynasty Warriors, as I said, was Dynasty Warriors 2. And this was when I was in high school. Uh, I was at a Sam Goodies at Universal City Walk, also in Los Angeles. And there was a demo kiosk. And I saw this bald dude with an axe running through a bunch of mooks, and I just sort of <laughs> stopped in my tracks and was like, what is this nonsense? I mean, Genway as a first contact is certainly a thing. It's certainly a thing. I I was like, whoa, I don't know what's going on here, but this is awesome. Especially since I think that was the time uh, of uh, Doves where they were still basically calling him John Wayne. <laughs> yeah, no, it was... The, the the quality of the pronunciation has come a long way, but yes, that and was... And by the way, uh, we had the French Doves at the time, because there were French Doves at the oh, time. Oh, wow. And they were just as bad, if not worse. Oh, that's awesome. No, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I kind of have a soft spot for the really bad dubs just because they are so yeah, bad and me funny. Too. They took the entire so- Sun clan and because they were on the southern part of China, they gave them French southern accents. Oh, no! <laughs> it was incredible. It's forever seared in my mind. And I love it. Oh, I love that. Uh, that is awesome. A part of me was sad when they decided to actually get some uh, uh, better, higher quality voice acting overall. Yeah. Um, yeah, Dynasty Warriors. 
uh, the English dub has gone through a very similar transformation, uh, playing Dynasty Warriors 3, but, like, Dynasty Warriors 7, where they were actually, like, really trying. Uh, it's, it's a huge difference. And I don't really know which one I prefer, to be perfectly honest with you, because yeah. there is something bad and silly about the bad dub, but the good like, one was, you like, a bit out really of the good. Game, but yeah. yeah. The good one made me stop and go, hang on, I care about these people right now. What is going on? Yeah, and that's very much the case for Samurai Wars 5. I don't understand what they're saying because it's in Japanese. But uh, there's some emotion in there that yeah. makes things feel invested. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, this is all of a sudden our longest intro to what is likely to be a very long episode, so we should probably get into actually talking about music. So last week, we finished our episode, which was just our random grab bag, on uh, talking about Samurai Warriors 5. And the different... We actually kind of went into a fairly long stretch of, oh, hey, uh, here's some of the reused music from prior games. And I don't think we really talked about how good the actual like music in Samurai Warriors and the Warrior series in general really is. Cause I would actually make the argument that this is this is one of the big selling points. Yeah, like these games uh, have a really strong musical identity. Yeah. Um, I... And I would wager a couple of these soundtracks throughout the Warriors franchise and elsewhere to be some of my favorite soundtracks ever like definitely somewhere in my top 30 or 40 for sure yeah like i can understand that for some people uh the warriors game uh, are i mean we call them uh comfort game but for some it's more of a guilty pleasure but yeah the soundtrack is unironically unabashedly good oh yeah which is why samurai warriors 5 soundtrack being just all right was such a letdown. Yeah, it's it's a disappointment when you have such a high standard of quality shown over and over again, and not even just with Warriors games made by Koai. Like hearing an okay soundtrack from them feels like a real step down. So uh, let's talk about what made these soundtracks so good. Starting with uh, some Samurai Warriors two, which my, was my introduction to the Samurai Warriors part of things. The two mainline series being Samurai Warriors, which take place in the uh, Warring States era. Uh, 1600s AD Japan. And uh, the uh, Dynasty Warriors games, which take place in the Three Kingdoms era. Third century AD China. Yes. Uh, So, starting with Samurai Warriors 2, in this case... Uh, we have, as an example, the theme from Tedogawa. Because what they did a lot of time was to have a theme for the main key battles, and sometimes they changed the theme midway for one of the more generic battle themes, uh, say, depending on some key actions. For instance, let's say you start an action, uh, you start a level... You have the uh, this uh, map's theme, then you burn a big key castle by doing success a succession of objectives, and suddenly it moves to decisive battle, which you hear 
in multiple parts. But the map theme is uh, only on, the on this map and I picked Tedogawa not because it's my favorite or anything like that, but because it's probably one of the more typical of the Samurai Warriors style of music. Yeah, um, I do like this song. I, I remember thinking of it um, when we were talking about Samurai Warriors 5. I couldn't remember the name of the battle itself. Um, but I remember this song being very good and kind of a standout from, uh, from Samurai Warriors 2. Uh, the Samurai Warriors 2 specific songs, I should say. Yeah. And you've got the key elements featured very prominently. Yep. The electronic sounds versus the Japanese classic instrument. With, on this one, even the added bonus of some uh, kabuki yo going yeah. regularly. Yeah, um, which fits into, you know, that's a fight between the Oda and the Osugi, and Kenshin Osugi in these games is always this, like, almost kabuki figure in that very, very serious and always played very, very straight, unless you're in a Magawa storyline, um, <laughs> while also being this very kind of over-the-top, larger-than-life figure in many ways based on Kabuki and no theater. Yeah, exactly. And that music really translates to these things. Yeah. Uh, because, like, there's uh, the flute that's very in front and that gives this track uh, kind of a bit of wonder, even. It's, yeah. It essentially turns the... Um, the theme from a tale of war to a fable, almost. All while keeping the energetic, uh, high-speed pace that suits the, uh, well, yeah, the pace of the gameplay. You're going fast, you're slaying a lot of mooks. It has to have some kind of uh, rhythm to it. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's a good song. <laughs> I don't really have much to add to it. Again, it's it not is. the most special or wild. The first song I ever heard was actually from Samurai Warriors 1. It was Kawada Kajima, which is another Uesugi track, but that one against the Takeda. And man, that song is a thing. Um, I wanted to briefly talk about the live version of Kawada Kajima that showed up magically on the uh, Warriors Energy 4 soundtrack, but that but wasn't meant to be. I could not find it on YouTube. No, oh, unfortunate. Yeah. Especially since uh, Warriors of Ultra 4 is a pretty recent game. It but is. Not even the latest. So it should go between a forgotten track and a track uh, that uh, is uh, actively hunted by the copyright holder. Well, I mean, that's actually the thing. Like, this was DLC from, several, uh, from Warriors of Ultra 4. I guess we are talking oh. about this now. And that DLC was literally hey, we did this 10th anniversary uh, live concert. Let's put all of the tracks for the 10th anniversary live concert into the game as stage music, and you could listen to live versions if you wanted to while playing. Oh, that makes much more sense. And I thought that was just so cool. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure I brought up this exact topic when we talked about uh, live concerts in the, uh, in the video game music sphere. But... Like, hearing Kawada Kajima, and then hearing the live version of Kawada Kajima, that you can still beat up mooks while doing it. Like, I didn't have to mute my game and play it on YouTube or whatever. Not that I could, because it's apparently not on YouTube. But you get my point. Um, yeah. 
it was just good. It was just there was something right with the world about that. But also, man, those tracks kind of bang pretty hard live. Got to be honest. Yeah. I I would think that makes the most sense for the Dynasty Warriors one, but turns out the Samurai Warriors one live pretty good too. Yeah, uh, it was it was combined uh, that concert. It was some Samurai Warriors music, some Dynasty Warriors music, Orochi's theme from Warriors that Orochi got in there, which I thought was really cool. Um, I always like it when they acknowledge the spinoffs. Um, exactly. And, and Warriors and Orochi also we, has we some pretty are. great music. Yeah, we are going to be talking about that at length later. Um, but. Um, yeah, no, not even the first time. Uh, talking about beat em ups and Streets of Rage earlier, there's a live concert of Streets of Rage music where the original composer is doing a, like an EDM set that I thought was actually pretty cool as well. So there's some precedent for that in the gaming sphere. It's hard to pull off, but when you could do it, it sounds really good. And we've talked about um, we've talked about themes and leap motifs kind of recurringly, but We'd be remiss if we talked about Samurai Warriors and didn't talk about Tadakatsu Honda's theme. Yeah, basically, uh, I've mentioned that there are generic battle themes and there are stage themes, and for the vast majority, uh, that's it, at least in the stages themselves. And as far as character themes go, either you consider a stage theme the theme of a certain character, or you are Tadakatsu Honda. Right. Um, so throughout the Warrior series, there are individual characters who get their own music, and Tadakatsu Honda is, at least up until Samurai Warriors 5, one of them. Um, and this is kind of a rip-roaring boss track that was first uh, introduced with the character in Samurai Warriors 1 Extreme Legends, but it's kind of gone through some refinements over time. Yeah. Like, the Samurai Warriors 2 versions, I find it too cheesy for how menacing the guy is supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I definitely agree with that. It's it's very bleepy bloopy. It's very EDM. It's not very... It's not very, like... It's almost happy. It's very happy. You know what I was thinking that? Yeah. I wasn't quite sure how to put that into words, but yeah, let's just, let's just call a square a square yeah, like, here. It's a very like, happy track. You're facing a near invisible boss, boss and it goes. Da -da 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 -da. Yeah, that's that just doesn't gel, and the the main line uh, stays in the more refined versions that come later on, but uh, it's better contextualized mostly. Yeah, um, they replaced a lot of the EDM lead pad with a flute, which we've talked about the uh, the Japanese flute a few times now. Regards to Samurai Warriors music. It and, is way harder on the traditional side later yeah, on. Yeah, and then they adjust just a couple of the notes. Like, it's still very demonstrably the same song. Uh, Samurai Warriors 3 did something very similar with the Battle of Nagashino. Um, but uh, for Tadakatsu's theme in particular, he really benefited from that remix. Now, all of a sudden, that boss theme felt real. And that was the version they used in Warriors Energy 3, which is... That would have a real argument of being somewhere in my top 10 games of all time. Definitely my top 20. Yeah. And he needed that bump. He did. Because uh, it, it was completely transparent that uh, they basically looked at their character rosters and they were like, okay, who can be the Lubu of this game? Pretty much. And 
Tanakatsu is an interesting choice. Not really the first one I would have picked, which is probably why they abandoned that in Samurai Warriors 5. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Tanakatsu's music really benefited from the refinement. And I will say, while I'm kind of happy his importance has been scaled back, I'm also kind of sad the music is gone. Yes. Because at this point, like, even Yoshimoto, which we've mentioned is uh, there in gameplay, doesn't have the same punchy music to go no. uh, for you to go, oh no, I'm, I gotta run. Which is probably why we tried way harder to actually defeat him the first time. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be fair, it is an optional objective, but still. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's true of just about any Dynasty Warriors games. I mean, you hear that Lu Bu theme coming, run! Unless you are finally strong enough to take him on, which feels like an accomplishment. It feels like a triumph. Yeah, like, the meme is, uh, do not pursue Lu Bu, and the music makes you feel that. Uh, in particular, I picked uh, Dynasty Warriors 7's version of it, because it's the one... That's not necessarily my favorite, that is now the uh, Majong spin-off game version of it. I need to listen uh, to that. <laughs> it's stupidly chill, I love it. Uh, but no, this one, the f it feels like the most Lubu theme of Lubu's theme. Like, the first notes feel like an alert. Yeah. Yeah, you hear that opening guitar riff. Yeah. Run. Just get out of there. Especially since Dynasty Warrior 7 is kind of where he was almost at his strongest. Like, I remember really struggling with the guy every time he showed up because I think there was something in the coding where he always had an aura, even at Shapi. Lubu is uh, a pretty simple guy, in all in all. Just have a fancy helmet with the two long feathers mm -hmm. and no sell every single move ever because you have hyper armor on everything. Yeah. Boom. Instant Lubu. Yeah. And also, you better use the uh, traditional line, can anybody provide me with a decent challenge? <laughs> uh, if there's one thing I miss about Dynasty Warriors, it's Jameson Price's completely over-the-top and just wonderful and perfect interpretation of Lubu. Oh, yeah. No, that, like, there's the cheesy... Hammy dub at the, at first, and then there's the immer more immersive, more grounded dubs, and then there's Lubu who is allowed to be as over the top as possible, even in the more serious soundtrack, because he is Lubu. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Even as I mentioned, Dice Warrior Seven had a very understated dub, but Jameson Price still went all out with Lubu because you can't play Lubu without going all out. That's not how that character works. Exactly. And uh, the soundtrack follows that through. Yes. The guitar is all in full force, the percussions are strong, but not overwhelming. Uh, and not gimmicky either, like the version from Dynasty Warriors 6, where they added German bass loops for some reason. Yeah, Dynasty Warriors 6 was a very weird game. Not as much yeah. of a... That, that's one that I kind of wish there were a couple songs that I wanted to talk about there, but for now, um, back to Lubu. The thing with that one is, it just, it hits you right where it hurts, and in many ways it's considered the main theme of the entire Dynasty Warriors series, rightfully so. Again, you hear this music, it's an instant indication that things are about to go down in a real way. 
I mean, I don't think the Dynasty Warriors 2 version is actually called Lobo's Fame, but the Dynasty Warriors 3 version is already called a remix of Lobo's Fame, and it's a remix of that song. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, no. <laughs> and I just kind of want to throw a little bit at the Warriors Orochi version of Lubu's theme. Warriors Orochi, yeah. as a soundtrack, we talked about the Warriors games having their musical identity. Warriors Orochi isn't just a mishmash of the musics of the two Warriors games, though it does do a lot of that. One of the things it has as part of its own musical identity is this sort of arpeggiated synth pad. Thank you for providing the words I was uh, searching during uh, a lot of the note-taking for this episode. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, I guess I would be in a better position to know how that instrument, uh, that sample instrument works. Um, but yeah, they actually incorporate that arpeggiated synth pad into the, uh, into Lubu's theme, and it works shockingly well. It lets you know, hey, this is the Warriors Energy version of Lubu. Run even harder. Because he's yeah. going to be even worse. Exactly. But I think we're going to uh, hold on to our first main through line for the Misu films in general in this very song over slightly over 90 seconds in. Because at this point, the music that has been uh, just heavy and oppressive and da 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 this kind of pace suddenly goes into much later guitars uh, that are kind of jubilant. And what I read from that is that if you survived over a minute and a half against Lubu, that's already a win in itself and you yeah. allowed celebration. Yeah, no, I think it's a I think it's a very good way to put that. Um And that's the thing with these games. They pin you against thousands of enemies, they pin you against an uh, opposition that seems overwhelming and they expect you to win and to rake faces no matter how hard that bumpy chin are and let me tell you okay so we're we're talking about lubu and lubu's theme in dynasty warriors 8 extreme uh extreme legends they actually gave lubu his own route yeah um and they a what if scenario that's pure murder it's great it is. Uh, they have the historical route, which actually follows, yes, a bunch of pure murder, but eventually he does get outsmarted and eventually defeated by, essentially, Cao Cao's forces. They tried to say Liu Bei had a hand in the battle, but Liu Bei was just sort of <laughs> there. Like, let's be real here. They didn't really do yeah. very much. Um, and you actually get to play through what is essentially a crushing defeat while still defeating, like, 3,000 enemies as Lu Bu. But the other thing that Dice Warriors 8 did as a whole was it had hypothetical routes. What if things didn't go the way history went and we go this completely opposite direction? And then we get to this scenario that every uh, that every game that stars Lubu, where you can actually play as him and he has his own route, eventually gets to, which is the Lubu versus everybody fight. And when I say everybody, I mean everyone. Yeah. I mean... Instead of throwing opponents at the guy, they have to throw kingdoms at him. Yeah, and they threw all three at him, or at least the nascent versions of all three that happened uh, prior to the actual three kingdoms. And the stage theme of this just ridiculously chaotic, brutally hard, even if you're playing as Lubu himself stage, is a song called Strength Weakness... 
And let me tell you, we- this song is a banger to end all bangers. Um, like strength weakness is Lubu's worldview. Yeah, pretty much. Um, um, that track, I didn't get to that part. I didn't listen to this track before today. And it's an instant classic. Yeah, um, I did get to that part, and I did listen to it at the time. Oh, oh, oh. I I blame this stage and this track entirely for Dynasty Warriors 9's existence and subsequent failure. Oh, wow, okay. So that's your nuclear take. That's my nuclear take. Here's the thing. You're going through this final stage of Lubu's route. You, it is incredibly difficult because you are fighting, in general, like eight officers at once, none of whom are holding back, several of whom have, have auras at any given time. In this just incredible, widespread, ridiculously powerful stage, everything's happening, the music is going, and this song is incredible. You've done it. You've reached the pinnacle. There's nowhere to go from here but down. Somebody gave you a, a challenge. Yeah. Um. So Kawai had two options at this point because they were never topping this. This stage is it. It is Dynasty Warriors just in its most distilled perfect form. They were oh, never fixing I this. See. They were never topping this. They were never going to. So they had two options. Try and fail Warriors Energy 4 Syndrome or do something completely different. Dynasty Warriors 9. Yeah. Oh, okay. That, I can understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, man, this song is incredible. It's, it's one of the most musically complex songs in Dynasty Warriors, just in and of itself. It's got key changes. It's got tempo changes. It's got an actual time signature change where it goes from 4-4 to 8-4 for a segment. It's got peaks and valleys like you wouldn't believe, but the entire time there's still that incredible, just jubilant intensity of, yeah, Lu Bu is about to take over all of China. Be both afraid and excited. This is awesome and it's horrifying. Uh, mostly awesome because you're in charge. Mostly awesome because you're in charge, yes. Um, It's kind of perfect? This song hit me like a truck immediately, and... um. When Eddie was saying that he probably couldn't make it this week on the count of probably going to get a new dog, which he eventually did, um, we started talking about backup plans, and we had a couple of ones, and a Muso episode was one of them. This song, Strength Weakness, showed up on my video game playlist, just my random one, and I'm like, oh, right, <laughs> I have things to say. Sometimes plans just work out this yeah. way. Yeah, I... I I cannot recommend Dynasty Warriors 8 complete enough. You could find it on Steam. You want kind of a perfect Dynasty Warriors game from a gameplay experience, from a gameplay standpoint, that's the one to get. Right, 7 has yeah. the better writing and story, 8 has the better soundtrack in general, but man, the complete edition, especially Lubu's route, just kind of takes it over the top at that point. And if you want the best devs, you pick 2 or 3. Yeah, if you, you want go, the worst best dubs, you play two or three. If you want the actual, like, objectively yes. best dub, you play seven. Because <laughs> seven's the one where I actually cared. I, I, I got to yes. a stage and I'm like, wait, I care about this person now? When did that happen? And I had to do some serious examinations of that. Was it on six or on seven that they started going further in the timeline to the Rise of the Jin? Seven. Okay. That checks out. Yeah. 
Yeah, seven is when seven is like, well, six didn't quite work, so let's really care about the story. That's the one I've been comparing Samurai Warriors five to for obvious reasons. Also, let's not give literally everyone a spear. Yes, let's not give literally everyone a spear. That was a big problem with Dynasty Warriors six. That was a big problem. Why with Dynasty does Zhang May? Why does Zhang He not have claws? He needs to have claws. <laughs> he needs to have Come claws. On. Um, anyway. Yeah, we gotta get back on topic. We're talking about the franchise and not the, the music again. Well, shall we talk about the franchise crossover? Sure! We talked about it a little briefly earlier. I mentioned that, Ori uh, or, uh, that Orochi himself's theme uh, appeared in that concert pack for Warriors Energy 4. But the first Warriors Energy 1 didn't actually have many original tracks, but the one... It yeah, it's mostly remixes. Mostly remixes. But the one it does have is Koshi Castle from uh, from the final stage, regular final stage. Every one of those routes also had alternate final stages, which were much less interesting. But that played a song called The Incarnation of Evil, which is the first actual example of Warriors Orochi music as its own entity. Yeah, I think it's essentially uh, before the game's time. Yeah, I yeah. Um, it, because it doesn't quite feel the arpeggiated synth that gives this uh, kind of trance-like feel to this uh, dream crossover world. At this point, the game was still trying to find its uh, identity, uh, but at least it knew it wanted one. Yes. So it, so it tried this and that, and both were good. Eventually, they settled on something uh, that was the game's identity, but this track in itself is something that has a bit of a different pace from the other, uh, but that um, really drives you forward. Yeah. Uh, really pulls you along. It feels kind of like... Uh, I mean, the best comparison I can feel is that it would be perfect as a Yakuza bus track. Like, you have the uh, lead-up, the that builds up, and then you have, uh, say, the guy's name and clan and everything appearing while there is the little pose, and then it goes into the rest of the track, and that would be perfect. Huh. You know, I didn't actually make that comparison before. Um... Yeah, no, I can actually kind of hear that now. I didn't, I didn't make yeah. that link. Yeah, it's uh, not something that's in your face and oh, it's a ripper or anything like that, but uh, it would fit perfectly. The vibe is there. Uh, yeah, and it's not even a complex track. Uh, certainly not compared to Strength and Weakness, and not compared to most of the other tracks we're going to talk about today. But sometimes. All you need is a really catchy main tune. Yep. And that one fits the bill. Yeah. Uh, I've mentioned before that in terms of uh, game music, I tend to prefer I tend to prefer really hummable, really kind of strong melody lines and themes. That is one thing Dynasty Warriors gives in spades. Like, it does not mess around. Oh, yeah. Because... It makes sense. You have a lot on your plate. You're murdering thousands of mook. If the thing isn't instantly recognizable when you haven't been paying attention for the last 40 seconds because you're fighting that officer, 
the truck just won't be noticed. Yeah. Yeah. So it needs to be picked up at any time, and it needs to have this strong through line. Even if you make things that are more subtle around there, it needs that mobility factor. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and any Dynasty Warriors theme you can't hum is kind of a bad one, to be honest. Yeah. Again, back to Samurai Warriors 5. Like, an okay soundtrack that's just sort of there is a huge step down in quality. And we're gonna I'm going to keep harping on this point because I have to. It's important. Yeah, Dynasty Warriors 7 had this exact same problem. It had, like, three really good songs and then a bunch of generic crap. Well, stage music, songs. Weirdly, that was a yes. game that I mostly remember for its, like, story and camp scenes. But that's, that's so, a whole... That's almost not a whole other conversation. Now that I'm thinking about it, I probably should have talked about Lubu's camp themes and that, because we talked about Lubu's theme. Uh, whatever, moving on. Hmm. Moving on. So, these uh, less remarkable tune as are kind of what you take when you make Dynasty Warriors musical identity and make it less Dynasty Warriors. Right. But what happens when you make it more Dynasty Warriors? When you add even more guitar on top of your guitar? Well, you have the soundtrack from uh, Feast of the North Star, Ken's Rage. Now, this is a game I played and wanted to continue, but when I did, uh, that's when my first 360 Red Ring of Death. Um, and I just never ended up getting... Timing. Unfortunately, yes. And then I just never ended up getting back to it. Um, and I never played it myself. But yeah, this song is good that you recommended here. Uh, it's... It comes to us from Haruki Yamada, who did some of Dynasty Warrior 7's better tracks and some of his worst ones. Um, but it's just, it's, it's got this, like, really just intense guitars. Yeah, like, uh, hello, would you like some guitars on top of your heavy guitars? Yeah. Um, guitars on the side, sir? When we, um... When I when we were previewing these tracks for each other, I looked at that one and I'm like, this has like a real like melodic death metal kind of hard line. Yeah. Which is perfectly suited for a post-apocalyptic world mostly made of beefcake. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, it's very appropriate. I will admit, I am not an anime guy, so I know very little about Fist of the North Star. Well, I know enough because uh turns out uh, Fist of the North Star cruel uh, and uh, kind of grimdark uh, anime everywhere else in the world is a comedy show in France. What? Yeah, because uh, the uh, networks uh, were uh, aiming on uh, one of the main channels a lot of uh, Japanese animation uh -huh. uh, at, at the, uh, in a kids show. Uh, so that's where we got our Dragon Ball Z and everything. And so they got the rise for Feast of the North Star. Except that's not a kid's show. No, not for what little I know about it. That one's the you're already dead meme. Exactly. So what they did is that on one part they heavily censored the visuals, of course. So Unsurprisingly. Far, so if people's heads are going to explode, then that's probably not suitable for kids, gotta be honest. Yeah. And then the dubbing studio was like, I am... We are not telling that story uh, at a kids' uh, sh hour show. So we are going to completely redo the text and the script 
in order to basically making an what's essentially an official parody of the show itself. So it's full of puns, it marks a lot of the show's cornier aspects, and yeah, it's it's a comedy in France. Huh. Okay. Wouldn't have called that. So, yeah, so that kind of truck wouldn't have fit the show here, but everywhere else, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, your version, that, that song is completely inappropriate, but for everyone else, and even what little I'm familiar with, um, what little I'm familiar with, yeah. Yeah, it's... It, uh, the comparison is obvious. It's basically like Japanese Mad Max. Like, yes. The, the DNA is 100%. the same. So, yeah, this is the sort of song that would show up in Mad Max Fury Road. It often did. So it's very appropriate for the Japanese version to have a similar musical through line. Exactly. Because the music lends itself well to that setting. Post-apocalyptic, largely desert, crazy people fighting each other. Yeah. So, moving on to another miso-adaptation of an existing franchise, uh, Hyrule Warriors, which is, in many ways, one of the best Warriors game period. I would, I would absolutely agree with that. I love the first Hyrule Warriors to death. I probably, I put a ridiculous amount of hours into Hyrule Warriors. Probably about 500 hours between the two versions. Like, 200 on the 3DS version, like 300 on the Switch version. Oh, wow. No, I only played on the Wii U version, which means that I had certainly a lot less content because some of it was DLC and that even more of it was added only on the successive versions, yeah. which was a bit unfortunate. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, that game has some of the best Warriors gameplay. Yeah. And uh, it just throws content at your face until you beg for no more. Again, 500 and then it hours. Keeps going. That is a ridiculous yeah. amount of hours for a game that I wasn't speedrunning. That was just playing. Yeah, and that's pretty crazy, given that the task on paper is a really tall order, especially musically, because you have Zelda. Yeah. This kind of monolith with uh, a storied soundtrack in itself. Yeah. Uh, really strong adventure themes, a lot of things that stick to your head, I can go ta 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 and immediately uh, that's uh, something that's instantly recognizable Yeah, and you have to match that pace. So how do they do it? Shockingly well. First, well. Yes, that's the conclusion. Very, very well. First, with adaptations. And they didn't even take the easy road to adaptations. Sure, they adapted some of the catchier soundtracks and made them with a more warrior-like pace to them. That's good. Then they went with something that's way more of a flex. Like, say, taking Scaloff's theme, which is the comfy, pleasant track from your picturesque home in the skies, it's peaceful, it's gentle, it's incredibly homely. And then they added just a bit of the game's main theme in the climax and managed to turn in this beautiful, high-action, light and hopeful piece that screams hero every other beat. Yeah, 
it really lands really well for a couple of genres that probably shouldn't be that most people would probably think shouldn't be mixing like this and i probably would have said the same before having actually played it yeah like you have the kind of same weird thing that happened with uh Tedogawa, yeah uh which is a light bit of gentle flute on the forefront and it works because of the fable tone before and of course it's uh, a, a kind of a fable and an adventure here too so it works as well especially with the decor that's very aerial so it needs something light and that delivers 100% yeah and if they only flexed that it have already been great but then they also made original pieces like Eclipse of the Sun which take this incredible blend of high energy and make them go through the darkness rather than the light from before yeah uh, while still managing this uh, high pace feel and give it a sinister undertone and then uh, when they established that with the wood instrument the which inherently have this spooky air they go okay but now we can do the same thing with electric guitars and keep the same tension yeah yeah and showing that it's not just the instrument it's the composition that's at work as well while still keeping something com combative and then a minute and 45 uh, seconds in you have the same phenomenon as the Lubu theme where suddenly things clear up all of a sudden and it's jubilant and it's it just uh, it doesn't disconnect from what's happened before it is contextualized by what's happened before and just bring in kind of demonstrate uh, how much of a hero you are expected to be Right. And it's just mwah, Death's kiss. It is yeah, I I I don't really have much to add, to be perfectly honest with you. It's just solid. I I, I will say I don't feel like it's as solid as some of the others, but it still it still gets it right more than it doesn't. Exactly. Um Again, more than Samurai Warriors 5. You had one job, Samurai Warriors 5 soundtrack. You had one job. Yeah. Um, to be fair, they had more than one job. But, uh, not the soundtrack. The soundtrack had one job. Yes. Yeah, okay. We, we've talked about Koai until we're blue in the face here. But Koai aren't the only ones making these games. Yeah, it's that genre. They don't have the monopoly to it. Sometimes it feels like they do. They definitely have, like, a lot of them, but they don't have... 72, in fact. Yeah, wow, that is a lot of them. But they don't have all of them. And a lot of, a lot of times you get other companies and other groups trying to make... Uh, I, I don't want to say imitators, but at least be within the genre. Um, one of the weirder ones I played actually comes to us from Konami. And that's 99 Nights, a game that I'm not sure I liked. So 99, 99 Nights was a more violent, more 
adult, and I say that with extremely deep air quotes, <laughs> um, game that comes to us from Konami. Uh, but one of the interesting things about it was actually its soundtrack. Um, the main theme was composed by Turkish film composer Pinar Toprak. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, the fact that she's Turkish, female, and doing an action game, and this is, like, one of her only video game credits. I think it might be her only video game credit. She did some supplementary score work on the Justice League film, for one. Well, then. Like, that's the sort of work she usually does. Um, I don't know how Konami got a hold of her. Yeah, that's the weird part. Yeah, because she has no history or background in games, and she's Turkish. Like, yes. Where's this? Ja- how did this Japanese company get involved with the Turkish composer to begin with? That just felt weird. But, well, it does give us a completely different take on uh, the kind of way to score the genre. Yeah, but. Uh, in that regard, now there are a few different versions of this song. There's the actual main theme, which sounds very much like a title theme for a movie. There's a trailer version, which is scored, like actually scored with this song. But then you have the actual stage version, which was called Defender of Truth, which was the one battle that every main character, I think, was in. Um, And... I like this one more for re- what it represents than the actual song itself, I gotta say. Because it's... It's good. Like, it's a good song. I like it. But it felt more like a mission statement than it did a song in and of itself. Like, this was uh, Konami from... stamping their feet going, This is our take! Yeah, and... They definitely go for something that uh, says uh, things are going to be hard this time. There's this big tone of despair that goes on. There's uh, those brass that go as deep as they can. Uh, yeah. Those, uh, deep percussions. And even the uh, uh, female choirs uh, sound like a uh, wailing tone more than uh, something more encouraging. Yeah, um, again, this one tried to be, um, it it tried to be adult and mature and didn't, it it just came off as being overly grimdark and edgy for no good reason. The tone of the song does kind of feel like it, but, um, there's a couple of songs that really do get Muso music right, and one of them is a song called Spiral Maze. I have to uh, get this comparison out of the way, and no, I'm not the only one that made it. This really sounds like the Metal Gear Solid that sound. Oh god, it does. It really does. Yeah, the comments agree. Okay, yeah, no, I, I, I haven't really listened. Again, I actually have this soundtrack, so it's on my playlist, so I haven't really paid attention to YouTube comments. I just looked up the video for our for our playlist for what we're going to be uh, posting for this episode. Um, yeah, it does sound like that, but that now all of a sudden I'm there imagining, is uh, one there is one key difference between the two tracks, however, and it's that uh, for this one uh, it starts at one point and instead of staying there, it gets louder and it makes it clear that 
it's not an instant of tension. That's where you are now. Yeah. Um, it definitely feels like a level theme. It definitely has growing action. One yeah. of the big downsides with Dynamite Night's soundtrack in-game is that it is trying to be a variable mix and fails miserably. So what oh, it does no. is, when you fight an enemy, the song starts, then it plays through to completion, and then music goes away until you find another enemy. Oh no, 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 that's not good. That's not good. You spend a lot of stages in silence if you're treasure hunting. Then you find one enemy, you're like, yes, I can listen to something again. You hit that enemy once, it dies, the music <laughs> starts, now you're running around with the stage theme, and then it goes away again. It's it's really uh, not, um, it doesn't connect in any real way. Take the true box. Yeah, it's, it's the mixing in that game. Thankfully, they fixed that for the second game. I'm going to talk about 99X2 for like four seconds here real quick. This game is utterly unmemorable, except for the things it does wrong. <laughs> um, for one thing... Well, I, okay, no, there's one thing that sticks to memory to me personally, because the main character's name was actually Galen. I laughed at that. In, in fact, I was so, like, thrown off by that, I thought at first, like, when I played the demo for Night Nights 2, I was like, is this going to be better than the first one? Um... <laughs> I thought it was actually taking my name for my Xbox handle at the time. I didn't realize the character was actually named Galen until I heard it in dialogue, and I'm like, oh, wait, what? Yeah, it's not the most common video char game character name. It's not the most common name, period. Try going through high school named Galen. See how that works out for you. It ain't great. Um, There's one Galen in Dark Deity, though he's not recruitable. Aww. Oh. He's just one of the main characters' dad. Okay. Um. So, like, musically, 992 is completely unmemorable. The main character, Galen, is played by a guy doing the world's worst Troy Baker dub. The world's worst <laughs> Troy Baker impression. The actor, of course, is named Troy Baker. <laughs> I have never seen a game manage to pull a bad performance out of both Troy Baker and Steve Bloom to the point where I genuinely thought they were impersonators until I saw their names in the credits. But they managed to pull it off in 99 2. This is not a very good game. I am now done talking about it because that's the most memorable stuff about it is just how not good this was. Yeah, it turns out direction is a big thing. It really is. Um, 99 1 had... 99 Nights 1 had a better dub, I guess. But, man, this game just didn't work on a lot of levels. But, yeah, that, uh... That music was actually really good. Spiral Maze and another one by this guy, um... Shingo Yasumoto, he did another song called Hammerfall. Not to be, uh, confused with the terrible power metal band Hammerfall. There were some remixes of Dvorak and Vivaldi in there that somehow worked. It, this was a really messy soundtrack. It, it, yeah, that f for the record, that's what made me laugh, because on the uh, YouTube video we used for reference for the soundtrack to be able to all listen to it, even if we haven't played the games and the likes, 
the uh, soundtrack credits are explicitly named as uh, in in the same line uh, composed by Pinato Frack, Takayuki Nakamura, Shingo Yasumoto, Antonio Vivaldi, and Antonin Dvorak. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's man, it's it's weird. It's like they took parts of every other Musou game. You have Dragon Guard One's use of uh, classical music. You have the more uh, synth stuff coming out of Samurai Warriors. You have random composers, and we're going to talk about random composers in just a moment, in the form of Pyro oh, yeah. Toprock to do the main theme. This game was really just writing trends as hard as it could, even in terms of the soundtrack, but it still managed to get out a couple of really great, really, really great songs. Okay. Random composers. So... Once upon a time, I was hanging out with my buddy who, at the time, worked at GameStop. His name is Mario, and he knew what kind of games I was into, and he recommended me this, like, tiny independent Musou game called Undead Knights. You want to talk about Grimdark and 90s, like, Dark Age of comic books mentality. This game was that. Okay. You're selling me some nightmares, huh? Oh, it's it's great. Uh, yeah, no, you know how uh, it is one versus one thousand slugfest, but most Musou games you have troops on your side. Yeah. In this case, those troops are zombies that you raise. Sweet. You play as a bunch of necromancers, and for a lot of the game, or at least the version of the game I remember, the music was actually black metal, and it was um, <laughs> and it was brought in by a black metal band called the Lightning Swords of Death. Which immediately sold you a dream again. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's... it's uh, It was this weird PSP Musou game with bad graphics, a dub that involved Megan Hollingshed cursing like a sailor and dropping F-bombs every other sentence. I have no... I, I have no defense for this game. It was... That one is a guilty pleasure. It was hilariously bad in all the best ways. If you're going to try and copy uh, a game in some ways while putting your own spin, and I say copy, I'm not accusing them of anything there, but if you're trying to copy something uh, this way, why Dragon Guard? Well, I mean, I, I think developers had a... Uh, I think developers understood Taro Yoko's creative genius a lot more than I did at the time. It took me a while to latch on to him. And we're going to also be talking about that not too long from now. Oh, yeah. But I just want to say how wild and wacky that it was that a power metal band like the Light... Not a power metal band, sorry. That a black metal band like the Lightning Swords of Death scored a PSP game. Yeah, so how was the soundtrack? Uh, I mean, what track are we talking about from this game? Tell None me. of them, because YouTube sucks! Okay, so I, I need to kind of go behind the curtain here. I, I, I remembered that the soundtrack existed, but I don't remember much about it. This was kind of this was kind of a novelty game, and I treat it like a novelty because it was one. It, it treated itself like a novelty. Yes. But when I was doing the research for this, and I was trying to find the soundtrack... I found a version of this soundtrack that I'm not sure I just put these tracks out of my memory that were the most generic orchestral soundtracks on the planet that I couldn't care about to begin with. 
but I could only actually load like five songs from YouTube on the playlist. I couldn't find the actual soundtrack at all. Um, and I couldn't remember these crunchy guitars and this black metal sensibility. Instead, it was just really generic orchestral stuff that wasn't by the Lightning Swords of Death, because I remember exactly like what that soundtrack sounded like, and it wasn't that. So I don't yeah, know... Yeah, it's the kind of things that sticks to your mind. Yeah, it really is. Like, if you're a metalhead and you hear actual heavy metal in a game, it's going to st it's going to stick with you, even if the songs itself weren't all that good. Again, I really cannot really... I, I cannot defend Undead Nights as a game, or even the soundtrack, other than yeah, how novel it was. Even if the gameplay is similar, you can't put Pikmin soundtrack on Brutal Legend. Yeah, that's not going to work. And the soundtrack that I heard, what little of the songs I could actually get to play on YouTube, because all of them stalled out. I don't know what happened here. I We had some kind of technological failing. Um, so I ended up just going, yeah, here's an example of Lightning Swords of Death as a band, just so you understand what it is I'm talking about. So unfortunately, I can't really talk about... Um, I can't really talk about the game or the music to any real degree because YouTube, man. Undead Nights is definitely a guilty pleasure sort of game, and I wish I could talk about the soundtrack in more detail, but it, it kind of also feels like we've already said the important thing. The black metal band, The Lightning Swords of Death, helped do a Musou game soundtrack. That's sort of all you really need to know about it. Yeah, exactly. You say that, we can move on. Yep. You've said the most important thing. Yeah. So let's do just that and move on. I like it. Okay, so, uh, still going on in uh, the uh, Warriors game that haven't been made by Koei, Drakengard, and uh, here in particular, Drakengard 2. You are in third person, you mow through hordes of mooks, mm -hmm. that counts. It absolutely counts. No, I, I actually consider the first two Dragon Guard games to be Musou games. The third one, less so. That yeah. one plays more like a Platinum or Devil May Cry style game. Yeah, exactly. But the first two they definitely have that Musou feel to them. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, with one key difference tonally, <laughs> and I mean... Key tonal differences between Drakengard 1 and 2 are a thing, in general, anyway. Yeah, Drakengard 2 is the reason I actually went back and recognized, oh, yeah, Drakengard 1 was actually saying something interesting, and I totally missed it, until I played the, yeah, like, exactly. lighter and softer and fluffier one. So, some context for when you hear the track, because I've liked uh, the track we're going to talk about, which is named Breakthrough, for quite a while. Same. This was this was one of the few like instant standouts for me in the soundtrack. Absolutely. Uh, so the way it's happening is that you're attacking uh, a city, essentially. Uh, first on Dragonback, you're destroying some of the defenses, and then the defenses fade back and shoot your dragon. Uh, not lethally, but he has to land. Meaning that you have to uh, get on the floor to uh, finish the last leg of the journey in order to uh, collect slash destroy the last uh, MacGuffin that's going to end the world according to the people that you fight. And I'm not 100% sure, but judging by who is responsible for this game, they are probably right. 
Um, it's been a while since I played it, but yeah, there were about three different world-ending catastrophes that could have occurred as a result of anyone's actions in this result, and solving one problem actually directly causes another one to exist. So... Yeah, that that's part for the course. Yeah. And so, uh, there's a different music when you're in the air, but when you land and actually get to gameplay, uh, before things start, you have an objective popping up that he, that says, An army of thousand is no match for you now. Mm. Break through enemy lines and head for Heaven's Clock Tower. And like, an army of thousands is no match for you now. You can't get any more missile than that. No, you really can't. And so, when you read that and after, the screen is filled with uh, low-tier enemy you, you can mow through, or skip if you're boring. <laughs> and uh, it just pumps you up. Uh, the track is constant jubilation. Yeah. It starts high and goes higher, and even in its calmer moments, it's still a celebration with some big brasses uh, and uh, fast violins uh, and it revels in your martial prowess unlike Drakengard 1 which shamed you for it yeah um again Drakengard 2 was a much lighter and softer and fluffier game than Drakengard 1 was um it's still with its merits like I, I it isn't as good as the first one just putting that out there at least in terms of its creativity but um yes. I can't say I hate the game, I can't even say I dislike it, I actually did like it, and I heard this song a lot, because, yes, it happens at that level, but it also happens at another level, an optional level, which happened to be the best level to level your weapons in, and... No, like, not... Like all, th like, all things remotely related to Taro Yoko, even if he didn't have a direct hand at this one, leveling weapons means more story, and that meant something I absolutely had to do, so I spent a lot of time with this song. Yeah, that checks out. And, like... I haven't played through the Dragon Guard 2, but I remember the uh, the earlier game and the later game in the series, and they both fit the bill for some of the either worst games that I absolutely love, or best games I would absolutely never recommend to anyone. Um... Whereas I take the middle ground of, there's a lot to love here, just be aware of its flaws. But if you want to experience it, I highly recommend you doing so, including Dragon Guard 2, even if that's the weirdo of the bunch. Um, yeah. Because that's I also mean, worthwhile in its own way, and it's, it's certainly <laughs> better gameplay than the first one, and frankly, a lot oh, of what yeah. happens there recontextualizes, I don't want to say recontextualizes, but as I said before, that's what made me look at the first one in a new light and go, oh wait... I get what they were going for now, and then seeing this counterpoint, a more traditional heroic story, I, I understand why it doesn't work as well as the more messed up story of the first game. Um, yeah, in a way, in s I can see why some people could aggressively dislike it, because that complete counterpoint with the heroic aspects kind of go against the message uh, of the first one in some way. But at the same time, it also could be seen as just taking a different point of view and sticking to it differently. Yeah. Um, and again, even just 
ignoring the first game for a moment, it still has a lot of story moments and beats that I think are actually uh, very worthwhile in and of themselves. I think yeah. Kaim's story in particular, he, Kaim was the hero, with deep quotes, of the first game. Um, his story was actually uh, fairly significant. Uh, I, I liked how that worked. Uh, I liked the continuation of Mana's story a lot. Uh, she was one of the bad guys of the first game. Um, there was a lot to be said there. And frankly, the soundtrack of Drakengard 2 is one of its standout pieces. Shockingly. Absolutely. Really, the um, only Taro Yoko game that doesn't have a standout soundtrack is the first Drakengard. Like, that's the one where I'm just like, there's just not really anything here. Yeah, and uh, two points here. First, uh, even the people I know that aggressively dis dislike Drakengard 2 don't have anything wrong to say about its soundtrack. Yeah. Because it's Stella. It's great. And I distinctly remember that even before Taroyoko was a household name, which it is at this point. Amazingly. Uh, even before that, uh, I remember the saying was uh, not thank you, uh, Yoko Taro, or something like that. It was just uh, so some random screenshot of a cutscene without context, like, say, uh, generally one of the shocking ones, uh, with the uh, a little logo on the lower right corner, which just said, Trolled by Caviar, which was the name of the company. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh... I'm going to get off topic here for a second, but I just got to say this. It takes a certain creative genius to take a bad joke ending from the first game, spin off of that, and create one of the most impressive universes I've really run across as a result. Like, Yeah, not only that, but to do that with one of the first time they act actually gave him a budget. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of impressive and terrifying um anyway back to dragon guard 2 first you know the soundtrack uh was apparently written by someone named yoshiki a or aoi i don't know how to pronounce that i think it's just a in japanese but i i'm a white guy I like i'm not good so. at that yes um however i've heard more than one theory that this is actually a pseudonym Mm -hmm. I, for who? I have no idea. I mean, the running idea is a young Keiichi Okabe for some inexplicable reason. I don't hear that. I, I, I don't agree yeah. with that theory at all. The, it's not Okabe, William. It's, it's not Okabe, no one... but like even in his lesser songs for things like Tekken or Fade Extella Link, which we will talk about later. Yes. Um, even in his weirder songs, he has certain like melody flourishes and lines that he likes using. And there's just none of that in there. So I, I don't think it's his. But as far as we can tell, Yoshiki A, under that name, has only done the one soundtrack. I don't think that's accurate. This is way too polished. I, it's got to be someone else. I refuse to believe someone came out of the woodwork, did a soundtrack this incredible, and then just vanished again without a trace. No one ever tries to hire this person again. No one ever brings them on for another soundtrack. I, yeah, no, the, I, I, I agree with the likelihood that this is a pseudonym for someone. I don't know what the Japanese music union looks like at all. So I don't know if this was a union consideration thing. Obviously, Dragon Guard 2 was a really low budget. Maybe someone called it a favor. Um, 
but Apparently, I... Apparently, I'm getting under this name uh, some Gundam tracks, too. Really? They did do something else? Yes. I did research on this a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't find anything other than the one soundtrack. Well, I got this page, and there's even a picture. Oh. I feel bad for my inadequate research now. Then again, it's just one page, so... Yeah. Don't put all of your edits in one basket, but... Huh. Oh, they're a group! That's why! I thought it was one person! And so, that is Aoyu and Yoshiki Matsumoto. Yoshiki Aoi. Oh, never mind. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, wait, what? I'm even more confused. Which is far for the course for Dragon Gatua. Yeah, but, I mean, I should be confused for reasons regarding story and weirdness, not not involving the actual staffers. Whatever. Okay, you know what? I don't know what the heck I'm talking about anymore. Th th this is a mystery. Caviar! <laughs> uh... Breakthrough itself, uh, the song is just yeah. wonderful. It just is, it puts a smile on my face. Uh, much like we talked about Warriors Energy earlier, it also makes big use for pagiation, but this time in terms yes. of some absolutely slamming string section violin leads. Exactly. Uh, uh, to clarify, uh, and partly clarify for me, uh, it means that instead of going dun, 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 it goes Yeah, basically it's basically it's a chord split up into its independent notes played really fast. Um, we call that an arpeggio, and then arpeggiation is automating that, basically putting it through a MIDI instead of making a human being play this thing, which I'm not convinced they could. I gotta be honest. This 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 this, this violin line would tire the most prolific violinist's arms out very quickly. It is ridiculous. Yes. It's fast. And that's part of why it's used, I think. Because yeah. it makes things go faster and more frantic. Yeah. This is one case where digital music can do things that human beings cannot. Um, Because I, I said it before and I will say it again. I am not convinced a human can play this track as it currently sits. Yeah. Even if it's possible... I assume the task is daunting enough that uh, people aren't keen to get on it. And since uh, it's a great track from a great OST from a game a lot of people haven't played. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um... But there's more to this soundtrack than just Breakthrough, of course. No, but I'm, I'm not quite done actually talking about Breakthrough, oh. so give me a couple more moments to talk about some of its musical elements. All right. Um, the other thing it has is a really, really, really great use of harmony. Uh, so the melody line is obviously the main thing you hear, but the harmony is the underlying, usually used as, and we've used this word a couple times now, a counterpoint. Um... In this one, it has this, like, deep horn section with maybe some lower strings with a just 
really driving along the song while these while these violins are going absolutely insane. Yeah, and even the deep horns manage to feel light and fast. Yeah. Because they're partly carried by uh, the violins and carry them back in return. Yeah. Uh, it's honestly just... It's amazing that a song like this exists in a game this unknown. Again, I... I if I were going to recommend any Drakengard game, it probably wouldn't be the second one. I would recommend the trilogy. I would recommend everything Kavya and Tarioko does, really, that isn't a gotcha. Um, on some degree or another. Except Because that man has no problem being a sellout at all. Correct. Um, I, I have to recommend Drakengard 2 soundtrack because, yeah, you have tracks like Breakthrough, but then you also have, like... Uh, tracks like this game's version of Fate. Fate is one of the recurring themes in uh, the Dragon Guard series. There's a version in each of them. The second one is by far and away my favorite. Um, and that one plays during some of the more emotional sequences. Uh, after Breakthrough, actually, when you're dealing with a completely different set of problems that No Way caused because he's an idiot. No Way is the hero of Dragon Guard 2. Normally, an idiot hero manages to make things better just by being determined and too stupid to realize how dumb... Too too stupid to realize how, like, you shouldn't be doing this stuff, but he's going to do it anyway to be a hero. This game, Drakengar 2, reads like an almost Taro Yoko-esque, which is funny because he didn't work on it, but he worked on the first one and the third one. Reads as an almost a Taro Yoko-esque uh, deconstruction of the idiot hero. Because No Way is a moron and just makes things worse and worse and worse. He basically nearly causes two different apocalypses trying to do the right thing. Because he won't listen and pay attention. So when it gets to an emotional sequence when things really go bad, this song plays. Uh, this version of Fate. And it is this just haunting piano concerto that is just so just pretty. Yeah, it's it has a very solemn quality to it, which makes sense uh, considering the scenes in which it plays. Um, and uh, the, it's distinct with uh, and does a lot with few instruments the same way uh, Breakthrough does a lot with a lot. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. No, it's it's the same sort of thing. It 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 fills the space nicely. It fills the frequency space nicely. I, I shouldn't say fills the space nicely in and of itself. Yeah, it's not a potted plant. Correct. Far from it. <laughs> we'll we'll talk about potted plant music later. I was actually <laughs> going to make a fairly similar uh, comparison, to be perfectly honest. Um, then it's called a setup. It's called a setup. Uh, <laughs> um... But yeah, this one is really just piano and strings. And, I mean, it's a concerto, so that's kind of what it is. Um, yeah. But that's more or less all it needs. And it's just just got this super good uh, again melody and harmony melody and harmony line. These these two composers, this team Yoshiki A, um, are really really good at uh, at harmony. It seems like a weird thing to be good at, but 
you can hear like the the melody and the harmony dipping in and out of each other and playing off of each other um this just works so 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 well uh okay i have a warning for the comparisons i'm going to make oh dear it's going to be a comparison to classical music how is that because a warning? This basically is classical music, just modern. I know, I know, but uh, I can understand that uh, when some people... Hear, yes, this actually reminds me a lot of Chopin's revolutionary etude, which it does. Uh, some people might uh, close their ears for a moment. But those people should not be listening to our podcast. Oh, they should consider uh the comparison points fair enough either way like no don't cut yourself off from some kind of music just because whatever it's stuffy give me a break yeah but uh point being that in the sonority and use of the piano in particular uh the intro for this song could easily go into uh, that uh, that song which is saying something again about uh, the uh, the quality of the music at display here, and also about uh, the tone of the music, the way it's kind of um, solemn, but with still a pace to it, still an intensity to it. Right. Well, it needs a pace and an intensity. It's, You're still playing a Musou game. It's sullen, but it's not... I was going to say it's not mournful. That's not exactly that. It's more the the kind of mourning that drives a dumb hero to still move forward and maybe even more than before. Yeah, I don't know. I just... This was another song. There's a lot of those. There's a few different songs on the Dragon Guard 2 soundtrack that just made me instantly go, okay, I dig this. And a decade later still hasn't... Uh, still hasn't really diminished in quality. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, PS2 era. Yeah. That's a point where technical limitations stop being an issue. Correct. Um... But I guess more importantly, we live in a post-near world where the quality and capability of game music, even beyond... I mean, the, the fact that this is still Taro Yoko, kind of, um, that his very next game essentially turned what we thought of game music on its head, um, this comes from a pre-that and it still just sounds so good and so engaging. A lot of times you get this big revolutionary thing and what comes before kind of loses its luster and I don't think that happened here. Even at the point where a lot of people, uh, a lot more people like the soundtrack than they like the game, the soundtrack doesn't crush the game. No. No, it doesn't. And even though it's very present, I think part of that is also because of the type of game it is. 
we've established that earlier in the episode it's a missile yeah you don't need that much of your attention span when you're slaying your 723rd mook pretty much um might as well get good good tunes then may as well and again this genre is kind of fairly well known for it but what happens when that goes wrong well we just talked about fate let's talk again about fate just a completely different fate Fate Extella Link. Composed by, to my incredible shock when I saw... Like, I should not be surprised when I see someone's name in the credits. Yes. But when I saw Keiichi Okabe's name in the credits, and Monaka, you know, we just talked about them, they're the near guys, revolutionary, I literally was like, wait, what? Yeah, and that was not exactly a good surprise. No, it wasn't. I... This guy is responsible for several of my favorite albums of all time. I just described Near One as revolutionary. What went wrong here? Because the music we got out of Fate Extella Link was easily the weakest part of that game. Which for a Musou really should not be the case, one way or the other. But especially not from a guy with that pedigree. Yeah, because it's not even that it's it tries something interesting and lands fat on its face. In fact, that's the opposite problem, is that yeah. it doesn't try anything interesting. It's incredibly generic. It's it's just a functional product. It's just, you know, a bookshelf or, ahem, a potted plant. Wow. We are so good at this podcast thing. We are. Um, <laughs> and it's like, wait... Like, and, and after I saw their name, of the, after I saw Monaka's name in the credits of Kishio Kami, I went back and listened, and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, there are those melody flourishes he likes. It, it does sound like a really just watered-down version of Kishio Kami's work, which is kind of the problem, because he doesn't, she should not be doing watered-down anything. And if anything deserves a wild and wacky soundtrack, it's a fate game, because that whole franchise has been described repeatedly as being more or less on drugs. Not the creators, the franchise itself. On drugs. Although, I heard it, and the thing is that it's not even aggressively bad or no, anything. it's not bad at all. It's, it's a fine... Uh, set of music you'd have at a cool moment in an anime episode. Sure. But that's it. That's yes. the level we're at, and we have come to expect a bit better at this point. Yeah, uh, we talked about this earlier in the episode, this this concept, but I'm gonna, going to hit it again. Like, if your standard is exemplary, Turning in something that's just okay is well below the mark. This is the same guy who gave us incredibly legendary soundtracks like the two Nier games. He's the guy who does Fate Extella Link and turns in something generic and normal and totally just there. Not bad, by any stretch. But certainly not but anything it's, memorable. It's the kind of music you'd uh, listen to in a YouTube compilation of uh, Epic uh, Battle Compilation 322. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 functional. It's functional product. But Keiichi Okabe turning in a functional product is an insult. 
because it shouldn't happen. He's so much better than that. He's so much better than that. But he turns it like, uh, all right, I'm going to see if I can. I can't even remember the titles of these. I have to actually double check my production order. I can't remember the titles. They're so generic because I have no interest uh, in remembering them. I have them under my eyes. They are Holy City, Coalis Patricius, and Coalis Patricius Octoritas. Sure. So let's talk about Holy City. It's a fine song. It's got some vocals, which Keichi Okabe likes. It's got the usual melody lines. I can't remember it off the top of my head. I'd have to listen to it again. I listened to it before we started recording, and I still, I've already forgotten it. Again. Yeah. I platinumed this game. I probably heard that song 800 times. I can't remember a note of it. I don't have much to add to that. That's some of the toughest condemnation you could go for. Yeah. Again, it's not bad. If it was function, I mean, if it was actually, like, aggressively bad, I could... You know, I would have something to talk about. Like the... Yeah, like, uh, I was wondering, have I forgotten it just because I haven't played the game? No, I remember the 99 tracks. Uh, 99 Nights tracks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I've also never played this game. Yeah, it... I did play the game, but I can't remember it. <laughs> yeah. I, I played the game. It's composed by one of my all-time favorite composers... And I can't remember it. And if it was just, say, a generic battle track at the middle of the game, okay, maybe kind of you need some. Sure. Maybe you need some mortar to go between the bricks. But I think I remember you saying that this is for the final level and the final boss. Yeah, that's the final stage, and then the follow-up is the final boss. And um, guys, we know Keiichi Okabe could do final boss tracks. We know this. This is not new yes, information. In fact, we know he can do final songs for games. Ha. Huh. So, sure. Yeah. All right, fine. Transition time. We have nothing more to say on Fade Excel and Link, so let's go to something that can't... Well, let's go to Kei Okabe when he's good. I mean, we, we can't even return to it just for the comparison between the level we got on uh, these final songs versus this... Yeah. Uh... Uh, this kind of progressive, weird build-up performance oh, it's... that takes you back through the entire game. Yeah, Final Song, that's the actual name of it, which makes a lot of sense for the soundtrack, is the final battle, the final song, haha, of Guard 3. Now, we talked about Guard 2 at length, and I did say that Guard 3 is not a Musou game, but it's the sequel to one, and it's also composed by a guy who did at least one Musou game and dropped the ball. This is the same guy. On the one hand, you have completely unmemorable song. And then on the other hand, you have final song, which I have said this before, and I will say it again because I am now going to finally get a chance to talk about this at length. My favorite final boss track of all time. Same yeah, guy. I mean, also, if you're going to put someone's favorite boss track of all time on uh, final boss... That final boss might as well be a rhythm game. I guess it might as well be, because it kind of was, but I'm not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> um, no, it, Besides, I think I already did my confession about how evil I was 
regarding that part of you, the you, game. You did, and that was preserved. That's a couple of episodes ago now. You can find that on our archive, uh, which is going to be on our Spotify playlist. We will make sure that is linked in the YouTube video as well. Um, yeah, uh, Final Song just combines all the elements of everything going. It ramps up perfectly. And yes, it's it's a rhythm game because that's a reference to Dragon Guard One, which was a Muso and fights another one of those kinds of bosses. And in fact, several of the mechanics from those rhythm games actually showed up in the non-rhythm game Grotesque Queen you can fight in the near crossover in in Final Fantasy XIV, which I actually knew how to do those mechanics immediately, entirely because I'm like, oh wait, I know what's about to happen here. Okay, got it. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Which felt so vindicating my first time doing that. Totally irrelevant, the but... The familiarity with those mechanics, even the first time, was just proof of the quality of the design there. Yeah. Plus. Honestly, yes. Uh, this song is something else. Final Song is truly magnificent. It is... It uses the main theme of Dragon Guard 3, it uses elements of fate, which we talked about earlier. It uses uh, parts and parcels of all of the all of the boss leap motifs from the game in Dragon Guard 3, and it just comes along with, of course, the usual ultimate combination of uh, Keichi Kabe and Emiko, Rebecca, Emmy Evans. Emmy Evans being the main singer for Nier and Nier Automata. Um, one of, like, her only, like, three tracks she did for Dragon Guard 3. Like, she was largely absent from that soundtrack. But when they needed to bring her in for the big guns, they brought her in for the big guns. Yeah, because I assume the uh, vocals for when you got into your super mode uh, was uh, somebody else. Yeah, no, it, that was somebody else. Um, the music, uh, all of the boss tracks, those progressive rock tracks, those were a Japanese singer. I want to say Ayaka Sawato because they use her a lot, but I could be wrong on that one. I, I honestly don't have the credits in front of me. Um, but yeah, no, they, they only had Emmy Evans for three tracks and they brought her in for this one and they did not waste a second of her time on it. But oh, no. man, it's just wild. The instrumentation to get used, the way it's textured, the way it brings everything together, the way that despite it putting together like 18 disparate elements, it still comes together really contiguous. It's an almost nostalgic look back at the journey you've gotten there yeah and it's not so much sad that it's over than uh, happy it ha it happened it's a, it's a lot of both is one of which is a pretty present theme in this game and at least one of her i can think of yeah from tarot uh, yeah yeah um it's, it's both. I would say it's both. There's definitely a melancholy edge to it. I mean, there has to be, yes. considering what happens in the story. No, we are not spoiling you. Don't ask. Um, But I'll be damned if this thing isn't beautiful. It's not a traditional final boss track by any stretch of the imagination. It's not rip-roaring. It's not a it's, traditional final boss. Yeah. And the fact that it's not a traditional final boss track is kind of the point here. That's what he can do. Yeah. He took a wild situation and knocked it out of the park, and he couldn't do that for Fate Stella? Again, I was surprised to see Monaka and Keiichi Okabe on the credits list for Fate Stella Link. Because entirely, I know what they're capable of, and the soundtrack they turned in was not that. <laughs> and the thing 
to uh, get back on the it is that even if you take these sonorities, these instruments, and this kind of generic, epic, uh, fantasy religious tone, uh, you can, there is still room for uh, something that's notable. The genre hasn't been solved. And I have a proof of that, and that is called Apocalypsis Noctis. Oh, yeah. Oh, incredibly generic, but incredibly good uh, in what at what it does. I would, I would, yeah, it does. Oh man, if only there was a song half as good. God, why does Fifteen have a good soundtrack and terrible everything else? I'm not talking about this right now. <laughs> We're not talking about FF15. <sighs> um, yeah, I, honestly, that's my exact opposite reaction to Fate Stella Link. Uh, Fate Stella Link was an excellent Muso game. With a really generic kind of boring soundtrack, which is kind of almost the exact opposite to what we've been talking about this entire time. Like, you know what? I'm going to bring this back around. We talked about the final stage for uh, for Fate Excel Link, but we also talked about the final stage for Dynasty Warriors 8 Complete, and man, yes. that song, yo, that's what a Muso final stage should sound like, guys. Yeah, like, what's the tribulation? What's the... Good job. Only 5,000 more guys to mow down. Yeah. I, I stand by that this soundtrack... Uh, sorry. I stand by that this genre largely has a place for music. And I, I put that a lot on Koai because they kind of originated the genre. But more importantly, they kind of originated the sound. And while others have taken bits and pieces of that formula, for the most part... The formula piece that stuck around the most is we gotta focus on the soundtrack. We need a good soundtrack. A lot of what has been created over the course of um, this genre is just, it stands alone so perfectly, more or less throughout time. And it's kind of one of the reasons I love it. Because um, with a few sad exceptions, like Samurai Warriors 5 or Fate Excel Link. For the most part, I know whenever I'm playing it, I can, whenever I'm playing a game for the genre, the soundtrack is always going to be there to get my blood pumping, to get me interested. And in many cases, as evidenced by this episode, give us something to talk about. Yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, it's an excellent genre to kind of Turn your brain off and enjoy what you're doing, what you're listening, and sometimes, oh hey, that's a story too. Yeah. Sometimes that um, story is better than others. Sometimes it tells essentially the same story through several different iterations. But I think that this kind of translate states you're you're going through when you're playing a musical game for long enough is really part of the appeal and uh, the it's one of those situations where the gameplay elevates the music and the music elevates the gameplay yeah and gotta be honest it's one of the reasons i love as i said it's one of the reasons i love the genre it it really can be an elevating experience and and really it's a, it's the summon to uh it's gameplay quality in this case that even without the soundtrack being all that notable, the game still ranks among your favorites. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have no response to that, actually. That's probably... I have a response of... to myself. Yeah. And it's that... It shows that the genre doesn't need those soundtracks to function. No. But it's so much better with them. It really, really is. Because, I mean, come on. Any genre that can give us strength, weakness, breakthrough, and pretty much all of the Dynasty Warriors 8 soundtrack, to be perfectly honest, that can't be written off. We can't let that happen, right? It's not a guilty pleasure anymore at this point. Uh, it hasn't been for me for years, gotta be honest, but... Hopefully it won't be for you too. Maybe this will give you guys something to discover. That is all the time we have for this episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. Go out there and murder some mooks. Have yourselves a good one, guys. Take care. See ya.